0: This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988
1: Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Jim Gantner, card number
0: 337, second baseman, Milwaukee Brewers. Okay, good to talk about the Brewers again. Looking forward to this. But first, we do have some follow-up from last week's episode about Bob Stanley. We got some expected
1: results when posting about Bob Stanley on the internet, including, I think, (laughs) one person who just said, I hate Bob Stanley. Oh, no! Which is really what we expected, but we're trying to fight back against with some nice stories about Bob as a human being. That said, perhaps... This person who posted this hatred of Bob Stanley lost some personal property to Bob's violent outburst in the bullpen.
0: Yeah, Bob Stanley, of course, known for a subpar performance, let's say, in the 1986 World Series Game 6, but David known even more infamously as a murderer of beach balls when fans in the stands would be
1: passing a beach ball around and it would show up in the bullpen, Bob would take a rake and just brutally murder these beach
0: balls. <laughs> you see it like it's a, like it's a sledgehammer over his head and then bring it down and smash, destroy the beach ball. And we'll put a link in the show notes of an interview that Bob did with WMUR in Boston about this issue. And the local reporter, I think, did some very good journalism, asking some good follow-up questions about why Bob did this. Bob's reasoning was that the balls would get onto the field and we couldn't have that happen. And so I needed to take care of them. Bob also said that a, a nice old lady wrote to him to ask why he didn't just save the beach balls and give them to children to play with at the beach. A perfectly reasonable idea, but Bob's response, he said, was that he couldn't do that because the beach balls had things written on them that weren't very nice, which sounds like a pretty bad excuse to me, David.
1: I can't imagine all of them had obscenities written on them.
0: Like, who does that? Who's writing Who's writing swear words on the beach ball before they f- bop it around the, the bleachers?
1: Matt, this also raised a... a traumatic memory for me. I think that you and I were at Chicago's famed Globe Pub watching Liverpool play Sunderland in October 2009. And this game is infamous for the beach ball goal, where a beach ball was on the field. Darren Bent shoots the ball, the actual soccer ball. It hits the beach ball and goes flying in a different direction past the Liverpool goalkeeper. Liverpool players are confused. David is apoplectic, and this is still in my memory. So maybe Bob was saving one of his outfielders from a bouncing ball hitting a beach ball or some kind of injury that could have occurred if they ran into this beach ball. I I think still, Bob Stanley, this is a heroic beatdown of a beach ball.
0: Yeah, I'm going to agree. I really hate beach balls. I hate beach balls at sporting events, but I hate them even more at music festivals. So... As a tall person, what ends up happening is that the beach ball will come my way and some short person is going to jump up to try to hit the ball and they end up punching me in the face. I love music festivals, David, in general. I'm a big fan, but I don't like getting punched in the face, which actually is a good segue to our next topic, which has to do with music festivals and hopefully not getting punched in the face. And that is... That is the Bluest Tape Podcast giving us a shout out, a podcast about widespread panic.
1: Yes. At Harvey Couch from the Bluest Tape Podcast tweeted a picture of a pack of 1988 Topps baseball cards, and he said, I'm going to open these live, and whatever the first card I see is going to be the card that I suggest for an episode. I said, fantastic idea. Let's hope it's a good one. He did get a couple cards in that pack that we had already done, including Matt Noakes. And the first card that he picked was Jim Gantner. I've not listened to widespread panic, so I wasn't really sure what to expect from this podcast. I went in and watched their live stream video. They said very nice things about the podcast. So thank you very much for the shout out, Harvey. And I also asked... Whether there's a connection between Widespread Panic and 1988 Tops, Harvey kindly made us the connection. Matt, do you want to describe this card?
0: He made this connection, meaning literally created a a 1988 Tops card. This is great to have multiple listeners of the show making their own custom card art. I would love to see an NFT of, of this here. And what we've got here is Charles Hatfield playing for Team Panic. And this is,
1: I believe, in the style of the Royals color scheme. So the blue writing, the blue field along where the the player's name is. And the images of Charles Hatfield mixing up some concoctions here. <laughs> I did not know anything about Charles Hatfield. Matt, did you know this name?
0: i never heard of it, no.
1: I expected that this was someone from the Hatfields and the McCoys. or some, I had no idea. Went in and listened to... The widespread panic song Hatfield, and then read more about Hatfield the Rainmaker. So one, I enjoyed the song, but it was still like it left me clueless as to what Hatfield was. Charles Hatfield studied pluviculture hmm. or rainmaking in the early nineteen hundreds, and he claimed that he could make it rain. Not like at the club, but <laughs> actual create rain.
0: Actual rain. And to his credit,
1: he did say it would be absurd for him to claim that he could make rain, but he could bring in the clouds. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, he's, he had some modesty. Hatfield went to the San Diego City Council, and they're in the middle of this drought in the 1910s, and tells them that he could make the rain happen. He told them he could fill up this reservoir. The city council agreed to pay him when the reservoir was filled. And they said, well, chances are it's not going to get filled, so we won't have to pay him. And if it does, then we've got a full reservoir. Charles goes out into the forest outside of San Diego and builds this giant tower with his brother. And they he uses a concoction and he burns this stuff. And the locals said that it smelled like a Limburger cheese factory had broken loose. So he's burning this foul-smelling stuff. Lo and behold, it rains... And rains, and rains, 30 inches in a month, which is still the wettest month on record in San Diego. But now the city has to deal with a flood. So the city's flooded, 50 people died in the floods. Oh, and Hatfield man. goes to the city council and says, like, well... Pay me. The is full. <laughs> they refused, claiming that if they had paid him, they would be liable for the damage because they would be admitting that they caused the flood. And that they caused the rain. So he never got paid. He ends up dying and taking the secret to his grave of the the rain making. It is assumed that instead of actually creating the rain, he just had a rudimentary knowledge of meteorology and some good luck and good timing. There have been other places where he went where this didn't work and he was chased out of town because it didn't rain. Uh, a film based on his life was made with Burt Lancaster, Catherine Hepburn, and he died shortly after that film came out. He was invited to this to this film screening as well, but it's a, in, a very interesting story. So thank you, Harvey, for making this 1988 Tops Charles Hatfield card. We'll play a clip from the song as well, and thank you for introducing me to this song and the story of this old timey huckster.
0: On top of all that, David, as far as a connection between widespread panic and 1988 tops, it turns out that the band are actually pretty big baseball fans.
1: Yes. Uh, frontman John Bell and keyboardist Jojo Herman were interviewed on Jam Bass talking about the upcoming baseball season. This was in 2016. And they were asked about some of their favorite players. John Bell is a Cleveland fan. JoJo is a New York Mets fan. Last few years have not been kind to either of those teams. But the connection to 1988 Tops is John Bell was asked his favorite player of all time. And he said it was former third baseman Buddy Bell. Buddy Bell has two cards in this set. So we will get to that topic at some point. Uh, He also suggested if you can make a change to MLB, they should have a designated hippie day. (laughs) (laughs) A night game with the lights turned off using glow-in-the-dark bats, balls, hats, gloves, and shoes.
0: Yep, this this sounds like some music festival memories uh, I've had (laughs) and have seen widespread panic at. So it is uh, a great connection. It's good to have that as part of the show today. So thank you guys. We appreciate it. Now let's move on to Jim Gantner. And a lot of the information for today's show came from the Sabre bio by Greg Hoffman. He did an extensive interview with Jim for that Sabre bio. And so thank you, Greg. The front of 337, Jim Gumby Gantner. We take a look here. And this is a good looking card to me, David. We've got Gantner is in the batter's box. There's an unidentified catcher behind him. He's got the sunglasses on. He's just finished a swing. I think that he's pulled a ball foul down the right field line. It's a really good card. The uniform is also very nice. This is the away uh, Brewers gray, but what really is striking is the blue and yellow stripes on the belt and on the cuffs and on the side of the pants.
1: It's a very fluid look to the swing. He looks good. He looks like he's watching a fly ball which is probably not going out for a home run if if we're talking 1987 (laughs) jim gantner he at that point went on a very long streak of not having a home run for four years another striking piece of this card the sunglasses Mm -hmm. he was not wearing rec specs he's wearing aviator sunglasses much like all of the people in the stands for bob stanley's card (laughs) but this is a great picture he looks very smooth very cool good looking jim gantner card the 1987 jim gantner card is a close-up shot matt i'll ask you to to look at that one to get a good look at jim gantner's face yeah
0: all right let's see here Whoops. oh dear <laughs> yeah The yeah 19 the 1987 tops his glasses his glasses have that progressive darkness this is extremely uncool jim gantner 1987 the 1988 tops is incredibly cool looking 87 he looks like a big dork <laughs>
1: and he has a mustache which i think was a requirement to play for these brewers teams you got to have a mustache the big glasses 88 tops much cooler than the 87 the 87 one though he does fit in with that wood paneling He looks like he'd be (laughs) hanging out in the basement.
0: Yeah, this is, it reminds me very much of the Chris Basio card, I think, has a similar look from that Brewers team. That was a card that I think that I pulled 20 to 30 duplicates of Chris Basio during my wax pack days. I
1: think when we started this podcast, you said that you had a vendetta against Chris Bozio and how many <laughs> yes. cards you had pulled, which is why we have not done the Chris Bosio card because you have complicated <laughs> feelings him for to last. work through.
0: Saving him for last. My bad feelings aside, let's flip to the back of 337. And Jim Gantner, second baseman, 5'11", 175. I don't even know if he weighed that much based on the picture. He looked pretty skinny. Left-handed batter and right-handed thrower. Drafted by the Brewers in the 12th round, June 1974. Born January 5th, 1953 in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin and a home in Heartland, Wisconsin. This is
1: a second week in a row where we don't have a fun fact on the card because we just have a bunch of stats.
0: Yeah, and they're not that impressive stats. (laughs) Particularly those first four
1: seasons. They could have really just skipped a few of those. (laughs) Not impressive, but impressive that he was with the same team for that entire stretch. And we'll get into that a little bit later, where he ranks on the Brewers' leaderboard, Hmm. maybe unexpectedly. So famous Fond du Lac, Wisconsin resident Don Gorski has eaten 30,000 Big Macs. Yeah. That's really it. That's all I got on Fond du Lac, because, uh, (laughs) well, on Fond du Lac residents, Fond du Lac means bottom of the lake as it sits at the south end of Lake Winnebago. Jim grew up in Eden, Wisconsin, not very far from Fond du Lac. At the time, there were about 200 people who lived there, and most of them were in Jim's family. This was a very large family, two parents and nine kids. His dad worked at the QP Canning Factory, and his mom worked multiple jobs to help the family stay afloat. He said that the family was very poor when he was little, and it was a struggle for his parents to keep the family fed. They grew up about an hour from Milwaukee, and so Jim was a fan of the Milwaukee Braves. He would pretend to be Eddie Matthews or Henry Aaron throwing a ball up against a wall and catching it as as ground ball practice. That team left Milwaukee when Jim was 12 in 1965, and the Brewers came to town in 1970 after just a year as the Seattle Pilots. Jim, at that point, would have been in high school. He went to high school in Campbellsport, a thriving metropolis of around 1,500 people, not very far from Eden. And while at Campbellsport High School, he was a great player. He was all-conference, three seasons in a row. He wasn't a big guy, as we see on the card. He's pretty thin, but he also led his high school conference in scoring in basketball. So not tall, 5'11", but a, a great athlete. He wasn't drafted out of high school and instead went to college at UW Oshkosh. This wasn't a huge school, but it was an NAIA powerhouse in baseball. Other baseball alums from there include Gary Varsho, who wasn't in the 88 set but was in the 1989 set, and Jared Washburn, who would be a D3 World Series champ and later a Major League Baseball World Series champ. Also included here, just, just for you, Matt, 2008 USA Female Curling Athlete of the Year, Allison Pottinger, is a UW Oshkosh grad.
0: Fantastic.
1: Oshkosh is not very far from Eden. He was close to home. The family didn't have a lot of money. He went to this small school, not recruited to play at UW-Madison or, or a bigger powerhouse like some of the other players that we've talked about. But Jim took this opportunity And ran with it. In two seasons at Oshkosh, he led the Titans to the NAIA postseason. Both seasons, 1973 NAIA World Series was the first time Jim had been on an airplane. It also gave him a chance to compare himself to other players and to see where he stood nationally. And he realized that he could play. That team finished third in 1973. And then in 1974, they made it back and finished fifth. Both seasons, Jim was an All America honorable mention. And in his sophomore season, he attracted some Major League Baseball scouts.
0: Yeah, Jim thought that, you know, maybe Pittsburgh or Cincinnati would be interested in him. But he ends up getting drafted by his hometown team, which picked him in the 12th round. And this starts a three year stint in the minors for Jim.
1: First, he goes to Newark for rookie league. And In his freshman year of college was the first time he had been on a plane, so he hadn't spent a lot of time outside of Wisconsin, and he was lonely. This was the first extended stretch of time away from home. He said he didn't have money to buy a car, so he bought a bike with a big banana seat, and he rode it around town, rode it to games, and he really had some personal difficulties in dealing with that transition into playing professionally and into being on the road and and being away from his family. He was also playing shortstop. And in 1974, Milwaukee had an 18 year old shortstop named Robin Yount, who was already playing for the professional team. So Jim was going to need to diversify his portfolio. He played a little bit at third base and he hit well. He hit over 300 that first year in rookie ball.
0: The next two seasons, he was at double A, mostly playing at third base, hits 257 and 12 homers the first season. 1976 hits 293 and 25 steals. So he's got speed. And now, meanwhile, up at the pro team, Milwaukee's Don Money was an all star third baseman that season, but he got hurt. And so Jim got called into the manager's office one day and got some news.
1: He thinks that he's going to get promoted to AAA because he's hitting well. And instead, he gets sent right to the big leagues. His first game is in Detroit. And as Jim tells it, he got pulled over on the way to Detroit for speeding. (laughs) The officer asks Jim, are you a hunter? Jim says, yes. The officer says, when a flock of ducks goes over, I can't shoot them all. I can only shoot one. And you happen to be that duck. (laughs) So Jim was telling this officer, everybody's speeding. I'm just going with the flow. So he was unlucky on that first drive. But speaking of birds... The first game Jim played against was against Mark Fidrich, and he got a hit. In fact, he went two for four in an
0: 11-2 to win. Against the Bird. He played in 26 games as a third baseman that season, hitting two forty six, And he was actually teammates with, with Hank Aaron, who he idolized.
1: And on October 3rd, 1976, again against Detroit, Henry Aaron singles in the bottom of the sixth. And this is his final at bat of his career. He's pulled for a pinch runner, and that pinch runner was Jim
0: Gantner. So he got to replace his childhood idol. So a big moment for Jim. The, that first line of the card, though, 1976, you know, he's only played in 26 games. So it's not like he was a huge part of that team. And in 1977, he was in AAA for most of the season. He only had 14 games, 47 at-bats. Then in 1978, the Brewers bring in a new manager and things change.
1: George Bamberger, great name, and he comes in and he was straight with Jim. He told him, you can't make this team as a regular, but I'm going to give you a chance to make the team as a utility ball player." Bamberger, or Bambi, was beloved by his players and fans, and he would join the fans for post-game tailgating, which is a good way to make <laughs> friends in Wisconsin. This team still has Don Money, who's an all-star third baseman. They have a young Paul Molitor and Robin Yount in the infield. And Jim is clearly gonna be (laughs) below that tier of all-stars and future Hall of Famers. But he stays in the majors for 78 and 79 as a bench contributor, and the team wins 90 plus games under Bamberger. They were called Bambi's Bombers. This team hit a lot of home runs, 173 in 1978, and 185 home runs in 1979. By comparison, in 1977, they only had 125 homers. So they were a, a
0: powerful team with a lot of wins, but didn't make the playoffs. Then in 1980, Bamberger had a heart attack in March, so before the season started, and he, and he was out until June. Buck Rogers takes over as interim manager. When Bamberger comes back, the, the team wasn't doing very well, only a couple games over 500. He ended up stepping down, and Buck Rogers took over again. takes over from then on. Uh, Gantner that season had his most complete and best season yet, 1980. He hit 282 with four homers and 11 steals in 132 games. So splitting time between second base and third base, just basically as a utility infielder wherever needed. And
1: I was looking at the stats for this team. Paul Molitor was playing second base for a majority of that season. I remember him largely from his later career as a third baseman or DH after he had had a lot of injuries. But in this season, Jim played more at third base than second. And so they get switched later in their career.
0: But yeah, like you said, a real utility infielder and a really useful player. In 1981, prior to the season, the Brewers picked up Ted Simmons, Raleigh Fingers, and Pete Vukovic from the Cardinals. And they're starting to put the pieces together that would go on a pretty good run. Jim was firmly at second base by this point. He played well. He hit
1: 267 for this Brewers team that wins the AL East for the second half of the season in the strike-shortened season. They go on to play in the ALDS against the Yankees. Jim went 2 for 14 in that series that the Brewers lost 3-2. to two. And this does take us into 1982, which is a great season for Milwaukee and a fun team to talk about and one that We'll have a few more chances to talk about with with some of the other players in this set. This is the only time that the Milwaukee Brewers in their history have made the World Series, and really just a fantastic season. Harvey's wall bangers. This team is a, a great story. Has a lot of great characters, a lot of Hall of Famers, and there were coming out of that 1981 season high expectations. And the Brewers started poorly. Buck Rogers gets fired after 47 games. Hitting coach Harvey Keen is promoted. Harvey's Wallbangers. Matt, have you ever had a Harvey Wallbanger?
0: I I don't think I have. It's like a it's like a screwdriver, right?
1: Yes, and I think it's a drink that like people just say, but I don't know that anybody has ever had. Yeah. <laughs> Let us know if your favorite drink is a Harvey Wallbanger. It's a screwdriver with Galliano. Galliano is like oh a yum. vanilla oh, liqueur. The team though was very exciting. They had an exciting offense they led the major leagues in a number of offensive categories run scored home runs rbis slugging percentage they also had the pitching staff with pete Vukovich, who went 18 and 6 raleigh fingers as their closer and then don sutton coming in as a late season acquisition to help them win down the stretch
0: yeah don sutton comes in just in time It goes down to the last weekend of the regular season for them to clinch the playoffs. And in Baltimore, they lost the first three games of the series, but the final game was Don Sutton pitching a jam against the Orioles' Jim Palmer to win the AL East and go into the playoffs. And Gantner that season played very solid defense and he hit 295, that was his best season so far. Looking at this
1: team, the players ranked by wins above replacement gantner is eighth which doesn't sound that impressive but he's behind robin yount paul molitor ted simmons all-stars and cecil cooper gorman thomas ben oglevy guys who led the league in home runs and cy young winner pete vukovic this is a stacked team and gantner is a key contributor to that team and to a great infield that would be together for a very long time
0: so in those playoffs in 1982 Gantner only hit 188 in the ALCS, but he was an important figure. The Brewers had gone down two games to none against the Angels, and Jim had two RBIs in a Game 4 win.
1: And then in Game 5, he scores what would end up being the game-winning run on a single by Cecil Cooper.
0: And that takes the Brewers into the World Series against the St. Louis Cardinals, which means we have ourselves the Suds Series, David. The homes of Anheuser-Busch Brewing... And
1: Miller Brewing competing for the World Series title. This is the first World Series in Brewer team history and only thus far, sorry, Milwaukee fans, and the first in Milwaukee since the Braves were there in 1958. And the series went to seven games. Jim had an eventful series playing a big role in the three games that Milwaukee
0: won. Yeah, game one went two for four with a triple, two runs, and two RBIs in a 10 to nothing win. Game four, he had an RBI double and scored a run in a 7-5 win. And game five, another RBI in a 6-4 win. He also scored a run in game seven to put Milwaukee ahead. But St. Louis comes back to win 6-3 and take the series. But Jim, for the series, hit 333, four doubles, four RBIs, and five runs scored in a losing effort. And I... You'd wonder, David, with it being Milwaukee's first World Series but losing in it, how would the city take the loss?
1: Of course they had a party anyways. (laughs) They had a parade that was befitting a World Series champ. Jim said, after we lost, we came home. We had to wake up and have that parade. It was cold. Nobody really wanted to go. They thought nobody was going to show up for a loser parade. We got in the cars and saw the streets were packed. And I said, just think what would have happened if we had won. Yeah, it's a pretty impressive display from the city of Milwaukee. They do enjoy their beer and enjoy a party.
0: So 1983, this would end up being Jim's best season in the major leagues. He played 161 games, t- hitting 282 and a power surge, 11 home runs. Amazing. This is his only season with a slugging percentage over 400 (laughs) slugging
1: slugging 401 he was a decent hitter throughout his career as we've been saying averages in the 280s 270s but he just never walked enough didn't hit for any power and he always played solid defense and that earned him inexplicably the nickname Gumby (laughs) I've seen it described that he reminded Gorman Thomas of Gumby when he played second base I don't know if it like if it looked like how Gumby would just slide
0: across I don't know I mean he's just skinny I think what we've learned so far through the show is that the nicknames for most players uh, are not that creative and don't usually have very good reasons behind them like Swamp Creature for example (laughs) Or Chico. <laughs> yes.
1: I, I like this nickname. Gumby's a good nickname. Maybe, yeah, he, he could look like Gumby. Does he have like a weird, <laughs> an oddly square-shaped head? I couldn't tell from the picture. <laughs> no. I couldn't find any videos of him fielding. So if anybody's got yeah. some bootleg Jim Gantner <laughs> <fielding>. <laughs> we'll,
0: Please send it to us at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Jim Gantner, decidedly not green, Looks very normal. I don't see anything that would make him look like Gumby. But the team overall, unable to replicate the 1982 results, they end up finishing fifth in the division. 1984 through 1986, we have summarized here, David, as he was Jim Gantner, which is (laughs) batting average in the mid-200s, light power, some steals, good defense, and often on the American League leaderboard
1: for fielding percentage assists putouts, and those kind of um statistics but in 1985 matt while jim gantner was not turning up the heat i think he was hitting 250 <laughs> <laughs> this song which we did not discuss on the juan neves episode we discussed brewer fever which is a different kind of heat that one wants to avoid getting brewer fever <laughs> this one is called turning up the heat and this is a jam
0: Yeah, this is a very musical episode, David. I'm I'm very glad that we've got a, a different Brewer's song to play because Brewer's Fever really didn't do it for me. But Turning Up the Heat is, is a real banger.
1: And this was written by Wauwatosa music composer and jingle writer Terry Sweet. And there is a Wisconsin Public Radio interview with Terry about this. Terry does not give the best answers to questions. He was very excited about the Brewer's. He uses some of the same words that they used in Brewers Fever like clapping your hands and stomping your feet but he claims that there is no connection between the two songs (laughs) and it's funny he says he remembers watching the playoff games when the Brewers had their long winning streak blah 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 but that was like three it took him three years to come up with this amazing song I love it the Brewers are brewing up a barrel of fun Brewers Brewers keep turning up the heat
0: all for it now in 1987, the last line that's on this card. Only 81 games played in this season, David, in a 272 average. Jim had a hamstring injury that kept him out of most of the season. He was around for
1: the first half of the season, I think, played until July. So he was around for some of the better portions of this great Brewers year. This Brewers team was called Team Streak, which is Good, but something maybe you don't want to do on a field unless it is a 13-game winning streak that includes a Juan Nieves no-hitter. Also, Paul Molitor had a 39-game hitting streak in 1987 as well. An exciting team that won 91 games and finished third in the AL East. Gantner had consistent numbers, 272 average, but then he had a power outage. As we talked about in 1983, he had 11 home runs, at this point in his career, he had 44. Not huge power numbers, but okay for an 82nd baseman. Then he went 1,700 at-bats, spanning 544 games. At the time, the longest homerless streak in the major leagues. He didn't hit another home run until 1991. He went clear out of the decade.
0: Oh my goodness. That is incredible. Yeah, he would hit home runs in batting practice, but he just couldn't explain why it didn't happen and maybe it was just a fluke but yeah
1: unfortunate he said it was bat. actually more unlikely for him to not hit one than to actually just luck into into hitting one that he's he was surprised that he
0: didn't well instead of having power in his bat he really focused on his speed and after coming back after that hamstring injury man something really happened because he stole 20 bases in 1988 he stole 20 again in 1989 and in 1990 he had five triples and stole 18 bases in 88 games
1: these would all be career highs for him on this card he never stole more than 13 bases but now he's in his mid to late 30s and is a base stealing machine in 1991 milwaukee brings in willie randolph to play second base and jim maybe he's gumby because he's flexible he's moved over to third base and he's still the same old player above average defensively, now at a new position, and he hits two eighty as a 38-year-old third baseman. That's
0: pretty impressive. 1992 is Jim's last season. His average had dropped to two forty-six, and that was his lowest that it had been since 1978. And David, there was an, a notable game in June 1992. Jim Gantner was on the DL with a hand injury, robin yount and paul molitor were also given the day off so this was the first time that all three of those guys were out of milwaukee's starting lineup since june 12 1987 so 819 games in a row that those three players played
1: until uh, jorge posada derek jeter and mariano rivera broke their record had the longest string uh, as a trio playing together I think Yount started in 74, Gantner started in 76, and Molitor started in 78. So they were all that core of the team and that core of the infield were all together for a really long time. And Jim was an important part of that. You said that this is his last season, but he didn't retire. And I couldn't find exactly when he retired, but I found an article that said in 1993, Gantner is all but retired. He goes into spring training and he says... He wants to try to play, but if he can't, he'll be with the team as a coach. And they said he could be used in an emergency if his shoulder was healed, but they didn't say quite that he's retired. But the writing is on the wall. Finally, in 1994, he failed to come back from that rotator cuff injury. And after 17 seasons as number 17, all for Milwaukee, Jim calls it a career.
0: Yeah, so closing the book on Jim Gantner's career after retiring in 1994, 17 seasons, hit 274, almost 1,700 hits, 47 home runs, 568 RBIs, 726 runs, and 137 steals, had a career fielding percentage of 985, and played in 1,801 games.
1: I was going to compare this to widespread panic shows, but. Widespread panic has played over three thousand shows. Oh man. So I was gonna like say, you know, Jim Gantner is more prolific, but nope. Widespread panic, they don't stop. I think that they've had a longer stretch than Jim had.
0: It's a little bit easier to play guitar into your forties and fifties, sixties or seventies if you want, than it is to play major league baseball. But still pretty impressive. And Jim is all over the Brewers career leaderboard. Ninth in overall wins above replacement. First in defensive war. Third in games played. Fifth in hits. Fifth in runs. Fifth in triples. Fifth in steals. And when he was asked about what his best memories of his career as a Brewer were, had a pretty impressive list.
1: Yeah, Gantner rattled off this list. And he said, seeing Robin Yount get his 3,000th hit, watching Paul Molitor's 39-game hitting streak in 1987 and seeing Juan Nieves no-hit the Baltimore Orioles in 1987. But none of those are from his own play. And he was asked about his biggest memory of himself, and he said, I don't have any.
0: Yeah. He's just an ultimate team guy. Being part of that infield, you know, playing with Hall of Famers, multiple All-Stars, Cy Young winners, and Jim Gantner is just the regular guy mixed in with them. But an important part of that team. So, what about in retirement? What's he up to now?
1: He went into coaching in the Brewers system for a while. He was the part owner of Hale Park Automotive Services. <laughs> and involved in that was a promotion. A fan could win an oil change from G- Jim Cantner. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you had to do, but there we do have a picture here of Jim. In a brewer's jacket, changing somebody's oil—that's
0: going in the show notes. That, I love it.
1: <laughs> but this is not at his at his place. But I, you know, he of course he could use the tools at someone else's facility. He's the man of the people. He also owned a coffee shop at one point with his wife, and later he became part owner of a bar in Eden, Wisconsin called Scuds Buds.
0: Yes.
1: Jim and his wife bought the Eden Hotel in two thousand eight. This hotel was originally built in 1870. The, the hotel and bar were then run by Italian immigrants Skinny and Marie Scudella in 1928, later taken over by Bob Scudella, and hence the name Scud. Scud's Buds. Bob sold Scud's Buds when he became ill in 2008. Jim and his wife and a couple friends bought it, renovated, and still run the place. The bar has a fish fry darts league and of course the brewers are on the tv jim said that he would always he always knew that he would come back to eden and everyone there treats him like he never left he still does some training with the team helps out on the coaching staff and works behind the bar at scuds
0: i love that i love that so much so yeah so if
1: you ever find yourself in the fond du lac wisconsin eden area go to
0: scuds and get some fried bluegill I might be going there tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. So, David, again, Jim Gantner was not a player that I was very familiar with. It didn't really follow the Brewer as much, and he was not a big name from that team. But what do you think now, having looked into him further?
1: When the Bluest Tape podcast, op- when the guys opened their pack of cards, they both went, "Oh, Jim Gantner!" Like he was like an old buddy, and. <laughs> I had that same memory looking at the card, but I also knew, like you, not very much about what he did in his career. I probably would have guessed he was an infielder, but also looking at his stats, there's not much remarkable. And especially on that team that in 1987 with Robin Yount, Paul Molitor had an amazing season. But Jim Gantner was the hard-nosed competitor. And I found some, some good quotes about Jim both from reporters and from his teammates. To a man the Brewers admire Gantner, he motivated more talented teammates with his zest for the game. He was a gamer. And fans loved him. Robin Yount loved him. What's not to love about a guy who never leaves Wisconsin? Born and raised in Eden, plays 17 seasons with the Milwaukee Brewers, goes right into running a bar that has a fish fry. Like, what's more Wisconsin than that? And a real lunch pail guy Yount said with desire, determination, courage, and a big heart, he was able to turn his average major league ability into an above average major league career, which is a very backhanded compliment (laughs) that was done on Jim Gantner night. We're celebrating this guy who had an above average major league career. Not Not a spectacular major league career. But he compiled such stats and ended up on those leaderboards and was a key cog in that 1982 team. Jim said his dream was just to play in the major leagues. He had no idea he'd spend his whole career in Milwaukee, and it's a blessing. He's in the high, his high school, college, and Wisconsin Sports Hall of Fame and the Brewers Hall of Fame. He is the last Brewer to wear number 17, so it's kind of unofficially retired, but maybe they can make that official. Jim Gantner was just a guy who took opportunities and he showed up and he didn't turn around and go back home when he felt homesick in Newark. And he didn't back down from a challenge when there were future Hall of Famers ahead of him in the infield in Milwaukee. Instead, he just kept showing up and ends up on the Milwaukee Brewers leaderboard.
0: An impressive career in its own right and a great card and a great story. So thanks, David. And Thanks again to Harvey and the Bluest Tape podcast. We are going to play you out with the song Hatfield by Widespread Panic. And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 1988 Tops podcast. And if you'd like to join me for a fish fry, cheese curds and suds and scuds buds, just reach out on Twitter. We're at Tops 1988. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week.